Matthew chapter 6, and I'll read from verse 9. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let's bow our heads. Loving Heavenly Father, we need you. We need your Holy Spirit to feel these words and to understand them and to believe them and to live by them. So please feed us. You love to feed your children. Be gracious to us now. Amen. Well, how do you feel about bedtime? Most of us have a funny relationship with going to bed, don't we? As adults, we crave sleep, and yet we put the moment off, night after night, far later than we know we ought. And as kids, it's even more extreme, isn't it? Sometimes bedtime is both the best and the worst moment of the day. It is in our house. The kids dread it. They fight against it. They do everything they can to delay it. And yet at the same time, it is the moment we most enjoy being a family. All the wrongs of the past day are put to right. We read stories, we sing songs, we love and pray and fall asleep on each other's laps. And of all the memories our kids will grow up with, I'm willing to bet that the most precious ones will be made in that little window every night which they spend all evening trying to avoid, trying to run away from. Well, I don't know when you pray at your best, but for me, the time I pray with the most feeling is just after my head hits the pillow. That's when I tend to run through this Lord's Prayer. Uh, If for nothing else, then I'm too tired often to pray anything else. But it forces you to say the words that perhaps you've been putting off all day, Words as central to the Christian gospel as it's possible to find. Father, would you forgive me all over again for another day of debt? Petition number five is the worst and the best thing we ever pray, isn't it? The most painful part of every Christian bedtime, but also the most lovely. It's the worst because we have to come face-to-face with the father we've wronged, the one we've been hiding from, and we have to account for everything we've done. We can't ask God to forgive our sins unless we're willing to name them. And yet it's the best, because it puts everything to rights. It's father time. Time on the lap of the one who loves you. And we are never as real before our Heavenly Father than when we've been honest with him. So often with the kids, bedtime is when it all comes out. But that's when we discover that we are loved all over again, isn't it? Just as much as he loved us yesterday and as much as he ever will when we're honest with him, real. And so petition number five of the Lord's Prayer 
is about wonderful release. That's the sense of the word forgive there. It means let go. The idea is of a massive burden being lifted from us. It's teaching us Christians that we need to live daily under the mercy of God in Jesus. Mercy which releases us from debt to him, just as it releases our hearts from bitterness towards others. And so there are two parts to this verse. It gives us both a daily mercy to rejoice in and a daily mirror to reveal ourselves in. If we'll rejoice with Jesus in that mercy and look with Jesus into that mirror every day, we'll find the experience very hard. We'll want to put it off and yet very, very lovely. First then, a daily mercy. This is a prayer about the rich released from debt. And that is a great mercy to rejoice in, isn't it? Luke's version of this prayer uses much more plain vanilla language than this, ordinary language for sin. That's where we get the version that we prayed a few moments ago. Forgive us our sins or forgive us our trespasses. You'll often hear churches praying that version. The idea there is of doing what God forbids, trampling his law. But Matthew here does a slightly different thing, doesn't he? And it's interesting, I think, in two ways. Firstly, Matthew likes to picture sin as debt. And secondly, the ones who are indebted are those of us who are rich already. This is a prayer for Christians to pray, forgiven people already covered by the cross. And yet it's us who are rich who pray every day that God would cancel our debt. So why is debt then such a helpful way to think of sin? Well, it broadens sin out, doesn't it? Far beyond our little peccadilloes to something much more fundamental. When we pray this prayer, we're recognizing there is something fundamental that we owe to God as our maker and redeemer and father. We owe him perfect, perpetual loyalty and love. We owe him ceaseless, open-ended, hot-hearted obedience. So sin at its root is far more than doing naughty things. Sin is failing to give what God deserves, refusing to pay what we owe him. A human being who doesn't love the Lord his God with all his heart and soul and mind and strength is like a child who takes a precious gift and doesn't bother to say thank you. It's like marrying a bride and refusing her a kiss or a word of kindness or being given the chance to see the greatest work of art ever made and walking away from it without so much as a second glance you are faced with something objectively, wonderfully beautiful and moving. And at the very least, when you're given a privilege like that, you owe the maker a gasp as you appreciate his skill. And as creatures of the maker, we owe him far, far more, don't we? We owe him everything we are. And every time we fail to give him that, Well, by straightforward justice, we sink deeper into debt. And when we scorn what he's made, 
and we actively rebel against his ways, our debt to his justice only grows. It's why, by the way, we confess sins of omission in church, things we haven't done, not just the things we have done. Because the truth is, those things we've done are only the tip of the iceberg, aren't they? A far bigger problem for us is our failure to pay the love that we owe. An eternal lockdown would not have been a problem for churches if we didn't owe God worship, owe him love. Sin is a deeper thing than naughtiness. It's sinful to withhold what God deserves, not simply to do what he forbids. James Packer writes this, when we examine ourselves, we'll find that our saddest sins take the form of good left undone. Now, when you owe something you can't pay, it is an extremely alienating experience, isn't it? What is the most common thing you do in that situation? You run and hide. We're getting to the time of year when the BBC put on hammed up Dickens adaptations on TV. The next time you're watching, look out for you because you're there every time. There is always a hopeless debtor in way over his neck, hiding in more and more inventive ways from his lender. Matthew likes to use that idea of debt as a picture for sin because it is personally awkward and alienating like almost nothing else. And because once we're in a debtor's relationship like that to God, only he can release us. So we don't pray to him, Lord, give me one more day and I will dig myself out. No, we pray, Father, forgive me every penny I owe. We have no way of going back to yesterday and filling in that ever-deepening hole. It is unpayable. I wonder if you've ever stared at your own budget and had that same feeling. It is unpayable. There is a hole here that I have no hope on earth of ever filling on my own. And so we pray this prayer because we know that only Jesus can pay it. Forgive means forgive. Someone doesn't forgive a debt because you've come to him late with the cash. They forgive when they scratch it off the ledger once and for all and give up all hope of ever getting back any of what they're owed. When God forgives us our debts, he is freely and kindly giving up all claim on the love and obedience which he was entitled to because his love for you in Christ's sake is big enough to take the hit. So while there might still be consequences that we have to face in this life for our sin, there can never be punishment for something he's forgiven. It is scratched off the ledger. It's gone. You ask God to forgive, and he said, son, it is all forgotten. Jesus has paid it. There is no condemnation left for you because you came to me in him. You spent the money. Now he has paid the bill, borne the cost. And however long we've put that off, let's never forget that being forgiven by our God and Father, that is the most wonderful thing it is possible to know. Isn't that true? That is what it is all about, this Christian life. 
Now, that brings us to the other interesting thing we noticed, and that is that this is a prayer for the rich. It's a Christian prayer. And perhaps you might be thinking, well, how can I be in debt to God when Jesus has died for me once and for all, and all that is his is now mine, and all that was mine is now his? How can I be in debt if that is true? Well, that would be a good question to ask. And the answer, I think, is that the relationship this prayer is based on is a real one, a living one. We aren't speaking to God in this prayer as an enemy speaking across the courtroom to the judge. We're speaking in this prayer as a son addressing his father. And our daily failures, our ongoing sin as Christians, that can never change the reality of our adoption. It can never rub out what Jesus did for us on the cross. Our justification when we trusted him was a once-for-all-time event. It's a simple legal fact. But that brought us into a real living relationship with a real living father. When we come face-to-face to every time we pray, and although his love for us in Jesus is rock-solid and sure, things have passed between us since we last spoke. Things we have to acknowledge and address. It's what you're forced to do in family life every single bedtime. You might have been shouting at each other all day long, but when bedtime comes and you give each other a kiss, you're forced to put it away because things can't be right between you until you do. Now, perhaps some of us don't really sense that intense need for forgiveness that seems to trouble other people so much. Some people seem so burdened by sin, don't they? Maybe ours just seems pretty trivial, as if God has bigger fish to fry. It doesn't worry us that things aren't as good as they could be between us and him. We have to do a US tax return every year, and it is an absolute nightmare of complexity every time. And we always resort to sort of some wild guess with a question that we can't possibly know the answer to, clinging to the hope that the US government has bigger fish to fry than some nurse and minister living in faraway Scotland. In that grand scheme, our little lives seem so trivial, don't they, compared to the millionaires and the city traders. Surely that's who they're interested in. And maybe that's how we think God looks at us and at our sin. He's pretty disinterested in us little cogs in a big machine. The thing is, none of us really believe that a human life is that trivial, do we? If you sat by the bed as a loved one dies, you know that human life is anything but. No matter how successful or rich or well-known, In that moment, all of us recognize something incredibly significant happening. Every human life is made with profound, eternal significance. And God cares about our sin because he treats us as that significant. He made us for a life of dignity, for holiness. And so everything we do with these lives has to be accounted for. What we've thought and said and done, what we've frittered away, what we've fantasized about and indulged in and ignored through laziness, through ignorance, through weakness, through self-love, 
All of it matters, deeply and profoundly, because we matter deeply and profoundly. We are not disposable plastic straws. We're human beings made in God's image whose lives are valuable to him. And that's why our sin angers him so deeply, because we matter. We matter as much as any of the great figures in history, and our sin matters as much as any of the terrible things you read of them doing in the history books. God weighs your life on the same eternal scales as theirs. It may not be as extravagant, but it's the same order of magnitude. And unless we acknowledge that those lives are a moral mess in his eyes, and that we don't have a hope of paying the bill, of making amends, then we haven't understood what this Christian life is all about. Our sin doesn't erase the cross, but neither does it erase our need to say sorry. And that isn't always easy, is it? That you find yourself putting it off sometimes far too long. We have totally free access to him all the time because he's our father. But sometimes speaking to your father isn't easy. We never pray to him, do we, without some sense of the distance that we've put into the relationship through our own guilt. And that's a burden we've got to confront. Jesus says, confront it every day. Keep short accounts. Don't run from it. Name your sin and be done with it. Jesus came to do away with the distance between us and our Father once and for all, and yet he calls us to put aside that distance through him day by day, to live every day under his mercy. The hardest and the best thing we'll ever do. Because as we acknowledge that deepening hole of debt every day. We're also learning, aren't we, how deep his cross reached for us, how far he went to fill it, ever-expanding grace for an ever-deepening debt. And so the deeper our confession goes, the deeper our joy and our assurance in Jesus, and the deeper our relief in the Father's love. Those words, forgive me, they're words you cannot pray without facing Jesus, without the deepest seriousness. And yet they're the antidote, aren't they, to all spiritual dryness, all self-righteousness, all self-justifying. Forgive me. You can't pray that prayer and yet be cold in your heart towards him. A daily mercy then. And secondly, a daily mirror. As we pray Jesus' prayer and look in on our own hearts, we ought to see the reconciled released from bitterness. Release us what we owe, just as we've released those who owe us. What happens to you, I wonder, when you pray those, those last seven words? As we forgive. Is that something you can say to God? Thank you, Heavenly Father that by your grace I have no bitterness left in my heart for anyone in the world. Can you say that? 
Or do you pray those words and find a little knot forming somewhere in your stomach, a face making its way into your mind? Petition number five. This is the only one in this prayer that comes with a built-in test. The moment we trust our own sin to Jesus, his prayer tests us to see whether or not that forgiveness of his has really pierced into our hearts. Did we say the words because it's just what you say when you pray? Or did we say them knowing just how much in us we're asking God to forgive? Notice that this is the one line of this prayer that Jesus comes back to explain and to amplify when he's finished, just to make sure we understand that he really did mean what it seems like he meant. Verse 14, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive yours. Now, Jesus is not saying that we're forgiven because of how forgiving we are. We're forgiven simply because of his blood poured out for us, nothing more. But he is saying very straightforwardly that we can't be forgiven without forgiveness. Just as we can't be forgiven without repentance and we can't be forgiven without faith, all of those things are simply marks that his grace has cut through to our heart. It's got a grip of us. We have to turn away. In coming to him, we have to turn away from all of our self-righteous clinging on to hurts and offense. Later on in this book, Jesus will tell a parable about an unforgiving servant, and he is so far in debt to his master that by rights, his entire family ought to be sold off into slavery to cover the cost. He is deeply in debt, but his master is full of compassion. The servant, though, he is full of bitterness. He goes straight from the scene of his forgiveness and finds the one fellow servant who owes something to him, and he literally tries to choke it out of him. And the other servants see it, and they are disgusted. And they go and tell it straight to the boss. What does it look like to the world when us Christians who are constantly going on about second chances treat each other without grace? It disgusts them. And most of all, it outrages the master. You wicked servant, he says. It angers the God of love when his grace doesn't rub off on us. In the strictest sense, our being forgiven is not a condition of his forgiveness. It is a simple, necessary reality for someone who's received it. If you're someone who's been forgiven, you will be someone willing to forgive without exception. Calvin said that it is just the mark of a forgiven person with their father's spirit in their hearts Forgiveness is what distinguishes the children of God from strangers. How do we react then? When others hurt us and betray us and disappoint us, maybe that is the single biggest mark of whether you've actually received and experienced God's grace in your own heart. How do you react, friend? 
Jesus died, among other things, to release you from bitterness. So what do we do then when we find these last words sticking in our throats? We find them hard to pray. Well, that is when you need to go right back to forgive us our debts, isn't it? Ask for a work of God's spirit in your heart. Perhaps there is some hurt that we struggle to let go of because the other person's repentance just doesn't feel adequate. Maybe it doesn't even seem sincere. Do you have to forgive someone who has never even properly said sorry? Well, how have you known your Father in heaven to treat you? How sincere does your repentance look? Has he held back on his forgiveness until you showed perfect repentance, perfect remorse? Or is the truth, in fact, quite the opposite? God has killed the fattened calf for us while our repentance was completely inadequate. It's still completely inadequate, isn't it? God has gone and run to wrap up his son, his prodigal little boy, in his arms while we were still a long way off from home. He's kept a place just for us at his table, knowing that however sorry we say we are today, we are more than likely to go and do the same thing again and again before his spirit finally wins the battle. In fact, he's called us to eat and drink with him week after week, again and again, precisely because he knows the life of faith will involve mistake after mistake, and we will keep on needing that reassurance of his forgiveness. He hasn't held out on us because we aren't sorry enough, because none of us ever have been. Perhaps we can't put away that resentment because it just stings too deeply. They just don't have a clue how much they've hurt us. Maybe they aren't even capable of understanding that. Well, how well do we understand it? Are we even capable of grasping it? Do we have a clue what it costs the Son of God to forgive you and me? I don't think so. So who are we then when a brother or a spouse or a friend comes asking to be reconciled, to demand something from them that God the Father has never seen from us. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that we turn a blind eye to people's sin. A wife might forgive her abusive husband. That doesn't mean she ought to trust him again or let him anywhere near her. Sometimes sin makes a mess which is simply beyond us to fix. There are consequences. And we have to trust it to God and wait for him to fix everything. He can see what's genuine. He can sort through the mess. He can perfectly balance justice and wisdom and grace. So we're not responsible for clearing up every last consequence. Sometimes we have to leave that to him. But we are responsible for what goes on in our hearts and for the people we shut out of them. Jesus is not asking us here for perfect forgiveness. Otherwise, none of us would ever be forgiven. He knows it isn't easy. It takes time. It takes the growth of the gospel in our hearts. Like every other part of repentance, ultimately, 
The ability to let go of our hurt is God's work in us, one of his many, many gifts, and one of the works he has promised to complete if he's begun it. So let's end then with a word of encouragement. If we pray these last seven words and they cut us, we find it hard to say, that might well be a sign that God's work in your heart has actually begun. The desire to let go and forgive, even when you're struggling to do it, that desire is something God has put there. It's his seal, the Father's Spirit. And the more you feel that desire to forgive, says Jesus, the more encouraged and emboldened and assured you ought to be of your own forgiveness. It is his testimony to you. And so the more we look in the mirror and see where our hearts sit in relation to others, the more we're forced to look at him and it drives us right back to the beginning, doesn't it? So that we can say thank you Gracious God, that however I live today, I lived it under your mercy. And tonight I can go to sleep knowing that I'm a child who is loved for all his flaws by my Father in heaven. The hardest of prayers and yet the loveliest of all. Well, let's pray it together. Loving Heavenly Father, teach us, we pray, to live every day under your mercy. We pray it, Lord, for ourselves, and we pray it for each other as a family who share in your Son, just as we have to share in each other's sins. Release us, we pray, from the debt of love and obedience we owe to you, and release our hearts from bitterness so that Jesus' grace would shine brightly in each one of us to the praise of your name. Amen.